Thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Parkman sisters. Have you been blessed this morning already? Amen. I know you've been blessed this week. I hope that you have as you have gathered with family and uh, enjoyed your Thanksgiving. And if you were a Black Friday person, if you enjoyed that, or hunting or whatever else you did, I went hunting on Black Friday to the refrigerator for leftovers. And, um, and I pray that you all have had a, a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, we are continuing our study this morning a series that we've called Defining Moments, and it's about those moments in our life when we realize God is speaking to us. And I can't think of a better time of year to think about defining moments than this time of year as we look at the Christmas stories again and again. Zechariah, your wife, is going to give birth to a son. I want you to name him John. It's a defining moment for Zechariah. Mary, you're going to conceive without a husband. You're going to have a son. He's going to be the son of the Most High. The Holy Spirit's going to come over you. It's a defining moment for Mary. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. He's thinking she's pregnant. I didn't do it. I don't know how this happened. Don't be afraid, the angel said, to take her as your wife wife, a defining moment for Joseph. By way of review, um, well, the title of this morning's message is How to Live by Faith. We've been talking for the last two weeks about defining moments and its relationship to our faith. Today, we're going to be very, very practical and look at how to live by faith. By way of review, the question is, what is a defining moment? And it is this, a defining moment determines whether you will experience or miss God's plan for your life. The very moment you know God is speaking, and that was what we just described with Zechariah and with Mary and with Joseph. The moment you know God is speaking, it is for you a defining moment. Our chapter or the scripture we're going to read today is found again in Hebrews 11. And I want to look at verse 13, and later we're going to look at the life of Moses as described in this chapter. But in verse 13, a verse we read last week, we want to look at again. And this is what it says. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And what a summary description of what it means to live a life by faith. In fact, in this verse is a template, a model for a life of faith that we could overlay every statement in Hebrews 11 where it says by faith someone did something. What does it mean to live a life by faith? First, living by faith requires a word from God. Living by faith requires a word from God. Again in verse 13 it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. They saw something that God had promised. It was a glimpse into the future, into the heavens, into the truth. They saw it, and that became the foundation for their faith and their walk of faith. Now, we get it all backwards. 
we look at a problem or we experience a circumstance or a situation and we begin an investigation and we deliberate and we gather all the facts. We may talk to numerous people, people that we may take to be advisors. We gather a consensus of opinion. We call a committee meeting and we come up with a plan of what needs to be done and how it needs to be done and then we pray. And often what we're doing is trying to convince God at that moment to bless what we have planned. The statement, the core statement that I want to give you under this idea that a life of faith begins with a word from God is this. To live by faith, I need to understand what God is saying to me. It's not a life of faith if God has not spoken. It's not a life of faith if it's not being lived in response to something God has said or done. Let me give you another example from the life of Abraham and Sarah. We looked at them a couple of weeks ago. But in Romans 9, verse 9, Paul writes, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Now at that moment, that, that phrase, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son, is actually a quotation from Genesis um, 18 verse 14 and it was that moment a year before the baby was born before Isaac, um, before Isaac was born a year before that a word comes to Abraham and Sarah in the form of heavenly visitors and they visit them and they say these words at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son and Paul looks at that statement and he says that is a word of promise. Because when God speaks, that's what it is. It's a promise. Something God's going to do. Something that God is, and you can count on Him to be that way. Something that you need to hear as you live your life. Now, this is not an optional way to live. This is the heart of a Christian life. Moses is the one we want to use this morning to illustrate this. Although we could have used anybody in chapter 11. In verse 23, actually verses 23 to 29 talk about Moses' life. But in verse 23 of Hebrews 11 it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now Pharaoh had ordered the midwives in Exodus 1, you can go back and read it. He had ordered the midwives to kill the male Hebrew children as they were born. Now, these ladies didn't do that. In fact, they made up a story. They said, these Hebrew women are too strong for us. They're already, they've already, they don't need us. They've already done it by the time we get there. But Pharaoh stepped up his threat, and he became more deliberate about killing the male children, and he addressed the parents. He made it clear. All male children were to die. And this passage says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. Now notice it says they did it by faith. By faith means they understood something of the will of God, and they were acting in response to the will of God. So by faith, they hid him for three months. Now why did he, they do that? It says because they saw that he was a beautiful child. Now what parent
doesn't look at their child and say, that is a beautiful child. We just had our first grandchild. He's a beautiful child. We made a deal with our son and daughter-in-law to send us a picture every day. And they've been good so far. Every day we get a picture of Callum. And he's a beautiful child. Is that what it's talking about here? I don't think so. Circle the word, if you want to do this, circle the word Saul in your Bible. Every Bible translation uses this word in this verse. Because they saw he was a beautiful child. That word for see is very important. Now the word for see in the scripture used in the New Testament is very important to pay attention to context. Because it doesn't always refer to physical sight. Often it refers to mental comprehension. They saw something in Moses, and it was something about what they saw that they understood to reflect the heart and the will of God, and they were acting by faith in response to what they saw. Just like the people in verse 13 saw the promises from afar off, they saw something in Moses. Now, they saw something God was showing them. In Acts 7, verse 20, just listen I think it's in your handout, but in Acts 7, verse 20, it says, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. God was up to something with Moses. And God saw something, meaning he recognized this baby was different. Philosophically, the word beauty describes anything that you and I value. And the more we value something, the more we say that it's beautiful. It's a way of describing something of value. And God looked at Moses and said, this baby is beautiful. And then his parents recognized that God saw something in their son, and they echoed that. They saw that, and they acted in faith based on that. He was no ordinary child. God had a special plan and a purpose for Moses. They didn't know what it was. They just knew that God saw something valuable in him and they could not obey Pharaoh. God then enabled Moses' parents to see in Moses what he was seeing. So in short, God was giving a word of promise to Moses' parents. Just like he did for Abraham and Sarah. He was cluing them into something that he was up to. So hearing God or seeing what God is up to always comes before trusting God. I can't make up what I'm going to trust God for. I can't name it and claim it. I have to first apprehend or become aware of what God is doing before I can trust him. In Romans chapter 10 verse 17, Paul writes, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the word, translated word there, refers to a spoken word or an utterance. So faith comes by hearing, recognizing that God is speaking, and that hearing comes by the utterance of God. In other words, God has to say something before I can hear, and I have to hear before I can believe. In verse 13, it says, people who live by faith have seen the promises. God communicated something to them. They comprehended God was speaking. They heard him. They saw the promise, and they believed. 
In verse 23, the same thing happens to his parents. God saw that he was beautiful. He enabled his parents to see that he was beautiful. He was an extraordinary child. He had a special purpose for him. And because they heard God, then they could trust God. I've shared this story before, and I'm, I'm just going to share it briefly again, because in my own experience, it illustrates this very thing. When we left California years ago, we had two little girls in tow, and we moved back to take a pastorate in North Mississippi. And we had a third child there, David, our oldest son, and, and after our third one, we had a miscarriage, and we were not prepared for that. Uh, Gail had been so successful at having babies that every even-numbered year, we were having babies. In fact, she kind of hated to see the even-numbered years roll around. 84, 86, 88, and then we lost one. And it was the first of three times we would experience that over the course of having six children. And each time was hard. Each time was difficult. But this was the first time it had happened to us. And we had the wind sucked out of our sails. Because we love children. And one morning, I was shaving after we had lost the last one. And in the course of shaving, I was not being particularly spiritual. And God spoke to me. And recognizing those moments when God is speaking, and God speaks in many different ways, but you and I, if we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have some incredible resources that are always available to us. We have the Word of God, that is always available to us and it has the heart of God and everything that we need to know this side of heaven he's revealed for us. We have the mind of Christ, the Bible says. That if you're a Christian, the very mind of Christ dwells in you. We also have the presence and the power of the Spirit of God living in us. And so although God speaks in many, many different ways, at some point you and I have to recognize that God is speaking to us, whether he's speaking through the Word or speaking through a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or a conversation with a friend, or in your prayer time, or standing there shaving, not being particularly spiritual. And recognizing God's voice is cultivated over time, and we'll talk about that another time, but, but the point of the story is this. I recognize that God was speaking. God said to me in that moment, he said, you're going to have a son, and I want you to name him Samuel. And at that moment, I put my razor down, I did something we're going to talk about at the end of the sermon. I went and made a confession. And I walked in to where Gail was still in bed, and I said to her, I said, Gail, I just need to tell you that God just spoke to me. And he has said that we're going to have a son, and we're supposed to name him Samuel. And she went white as the sheet. And she said, well, last night, she was in the bathroom. She was taking a bath. You know, the bathroom can be a very spiritual place. (laughs) 
And God had spoken to her the same thing. In fact, she was so struck by the clarity with which he spoke that she began to talk back to him, Lord, I'm not sure I like the name Samuel. (laughs) When we went to the doctor, we discovered several weeks later that, in fact, she was expecting we were, we were going to have another baby. And we made it before the even-numbered year 1990 ran out. And we went to the doctor, and as we met with this doctor who had walked with us through the birth of one child and the loss of another, as, as we talked to that doctor, he was very careful. He was a good doctor. He looked at us. He said, he said Don, I want you to know you and Gail have nothing to be afraid of. Every pregnancy is different. Every pregnancy is unique. And so this is something unique, and you don't have to worry about necessarily a miscarriage happening again. And at that moment, I understood why God said, you're going to have a son. Because I could look at the doctor and I could say to him, on every visit, if I needed to, but I could look at the doctor and say to him, it's okay, doc, because we know we're going to have a son. We've already picked out his name. (laughs) And by faith for nine months, we were not afraid. And so before I can trust God, I have to know what God is saying. I have to know what he's going to do. God has to speak, and when he speaks, it's a defining moment, and I'm going to either come out of that defining moment trusting God and doing something by faith, or I'm going to come out of that defining moment losing something that God had in mind for me in my life. And so living by faith means that you see the promises. Somehow you comprehend that there is a word from God And he is speaking to you. But it also means, secondly, living by faith begins with a decision to receive the Word of God as an abundant treasure and an absolute truth. Living by faith begins with a decision to receive the Word of God as an abundant treasure and an absolute truth. You see, God speaks, and then I have to respond somehow on some level to what he has said. In the second part of verse 13, it says, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, okay, they saw them, they understood what God was saying, having seen them afar off, were assured of them, and then it says this, embraced them. In your Bible, it may say received them or welcomed them. Embraced them. And so here you have these people of faith, and the first thing they do is they understand what God has said, and then they respond to that, the very first thing they do is they embrace or welcome what God has said. To embrace them, the Greek word means to draw to oneself, to welcome as your own. It's the way you would greet someone dear at the front door of your house when they come. You would would open your arms wide, they would come, and you would wrap your arms around them, and you would receive them to yourself. You would embrace them, you would welcome them, you would receive them. That's what we have to do with God's promise. We have to draw it to us. We have to take it in our arms. We have to embrace it. We have to say, this is mine. This is mine. God has spoken to me. It's not just words printed on the page of an old book. God has spoken to me. This is mine. And we have to embrace it. We have to welcome it. At some point, you and I have to realize that God is speaking. And it may be a scripture verse that has spoken to millions of people for thousands of years, but you have to take that promise to yourself and understand God has spoken to me. And so here's the controlling statement for this point I want you to hear. To live by faith, 
I need to form a life-defining conviction based on what he has said. In other words, I can't just understand that God has spoken, but if I'm going to live by faith, I have to take what he has said, and it has to become a conviction, a part of me. This is the truth about me. This is something God's going to do. This is something God's saying to me, but I make it my own. It becomes a life-defining conviction in me. Notice how this becomes obvious in the life of Moses. We looked at his parents already, but Moses made a series of very personal and costly decisions in his life because he embraced or owned the word of promise from God after he saw it. Not just his parents, but he saw it. Listen to verse 24. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, who raised him? Pharaoh's daughter. So what what do you imagine was available to him because he was raised as Pharaoh's child, his daughter's uh, grandson. I mean, everything, everything was available to him. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he, here it is, he looked to the reward. He saw something. He understood. By faith, he did those things. By faith, he suffered these losses. By faith, he cut those ties. Why? Because there was something ahead that was better. And he had embraced it for himself. He saw it. He understood. Something of greater value, something better. Verse 27, it goes on. By faith, he forsook Egypt. He left, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured, here it is again, As seeing him who is invisible. Not just something of greater value, but someone of greater power. And he saw him. And it controlled his life because he embraced the truth of who God is and what God wanted to do with him. What did he endure? He lost everything. Now any person, if we watched a guy do that today, in 2014, anyone looking at Moses at that moment, would say, this guy's nuts. He's giving up everything. Here's a man with tremendous training. His people need him, and look at what's happened to him. Now he's stuck out as a shepherd in the desert for years and years. And his 40s go by, and his 50s go by, and his 60s go by, and his 70s go by, and now he's in his 80s. He's in his 80s, and then God comes to him one day in a burning bush and says, Moses, I have a job for you. 80 years old. We just thought it was tough when Abraham had a baby when he was 70, or left left his homeland when he was 75. He was even older with the baby. And Moses was ready. You say, well, in that burning bush conversation, it sounded like he had a lot of doubts. didn't sound like much faith. His His doubts were in him, not in God. He had a lot of self-doubt. And if you go back and read carefully, that's what's showing up there. But it's not a lack of faith in God. Long before the burning bush, there was a burning faith inside the heart of Moses. He was convinced God had a purpose for his life, and that meant giving up a life of privilege. An enduring faith requires two things. I've got to know what God has said. And then I've got to own what God has said. 
When I was in school, something happened to me that's never happened before or since when I was in college. I was driving my car back to the house where we lived off campus. It was an old antebellum house. About seven guys lived there with me. And I was driving my car back, and all of a sudden it, it sputtered and shook and stopped. And I looked down at my fuel tank, and we didn't have little lights that came on back then. And I was out of gas. That's never happened to me since. I completely ran out of gas. And it was just such a short trip between the campus and the house, I never looked at it very much, and, and it got me. Embracing the word of promise is the fuel for a life of faith. It's the motivation to keep going. It is the thing that will keep you doing what Moses did for decade after decade out in the desert when all you want to do is quit and give up. To keep you from running out of gas, you've got to focus on what God has said. And can I encourage you? Can I encourage you that I encourage you in the margin of your Bible or get yourself a journal or however you do it? When God speaks to you, would you please, dear brother or sister, for your sake, would you write it down and put a date by it? And then go back to it when you need to. Keep a journal. Keep a note. You know, when you and I are in school and the teacher says, take out a piece of paper and take notes for this is going to be on the test. Boy, you and I do it in a heartbeat. And when the God of the universe speaks to you and me, don't you think we ought to write it down? Number three, living by faith means that you have a word from God and then that you've received that word and owned it and then it also means, number three, living by faith is a walk that agrees with and lines up with what God has said. It agrees with and lines up with what God has said. Look at the last part of verse 13. They, they have seen it from a distance. They were assured of it. They embraced it. And then it says, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Living by faith means seeing the promise, it means embracing the promise, and then what we see them doing here, it means confessing the promise. Now, I want you to see the sequence here because it's all through chapter 11. God speaks is the first thing, and then God's people act in response to what God has said. Over and over again, by faith they did this, by faith they did this, by faith they did this. And, and when it says by faith, it means that God has spoken and they are responding to something God has said. When the, when the writer says that they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, that word confess, you've heard this taught before in Sunday school, probably from this pulpit, but that word confess is a Greek word, homologeo. And the first part of it, homo, means same, legeo means word. It means to say the same word. It means to agree with. And so when they confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers on the earth, they were agreeing with God that that's who they were based on seeing the promises afar off. In other words, the promises I'm going to receive are not here 
but there. And so it's not going to happen on this side of heaven. That's what they were saying. What God has said, I'm going to get. What God is going to give to me, what God is going to do for me is not here, it's there. So what does that mean about my life here? It's not my home. (laughs) I'm a pilgrim here. I don't belong here. There's something more. To agree with God, to confess, means to agree with Him. And it should show up in the way that you talk about you. If you believe God has something for you that's not found on earth, how are you going to speak about yourself here? You're going to say things like, I'm just passing through this world. It affects the way you think about you. If God says you're forgiven, how do you confess that truth of what God has said? You have to agree with him. I'm forgiven. You may not feel like it. You may feel the cloud of guilt continue to press on you. But if you see what God has said and you embrace it as a word from him to you, you've got to agree with him and confess, I am forgiven because God says I'm forgiven. It should affect the way you act. When you agree with God. If I agree with God, then it should show up. And that's all of what chapter 11 is about. I understand what God is saying to me. I own it for myself and I act on it. Let me give you one example. And I run into this all the time. First Peter 3 verse 1. This is not on the screen. You can just jot it down in the margin. But listen to what it says. First Peter 3 1. Here's an example. Wives... Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct or the lifestyle of their wives. That is so, so counterintuitive, goes against the grain of what a woman feels. In a worst case scenario where she believes in the Lord Jesus, she loves him. She loves his word. She loves his church. She loves his people. And she lives with a man who does not. What's the promise here? The promise here is that the greatest impact you will have on your husband is not with your words, but with your ways. The way you walk with God before him. The way you pray, and he knows that you pray. The way you submit or yield to his leadership of your home. Even when it seems to you he's doing nothing worthy of your respect. The fact that you honor him. He is your husband, and God has given him to you. And he, because of that, is a treasure to you. And because, not by your words, but by the way you live. The way you act. The way you approach him. Do you agree with God or not? So here's the controlling statement for this section. To live by faith, I need to act in a way that is consistent with what God has said. Act in a way that is consistent with what God has said. And Moses illustrates this for us. In verse 28 it says, By faith he kept the Passover, and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. He did it by faith. God told him what he was going to do, and he obeyed. So God's going to come, bring the final plague. This death angel's going to come through, kill the firstborn in all the land. There's one way they can be saved. 
is if in the house where that child is, someone goes outside, takes lamb's blood, and sloshes it on the doorpost. And when that death angel comes by and he sees that on the doorpost, they'll be saved by the blood of the lamb. And Moses, it says, did that by faith. He understood what God was going to do, and he acted in a way that reflected that belief. In this case, his confession was seen by his outward obedience. And can I say this? You can see the promise, and you can embrace the promise as your own, as a word from God to you, but the moment you confess or act on that promise, expect a fight. Satan knows that when you really trust God to do what he says he's going to do, that's when the mountains move. And that's when God comes down. And that's when the heavens open and we see God at work among us. And he's going to fight that with everything that he's worth. He's going to attack you and get you to retreat, to get you to doubt, to get you to quit if he can. Now, I want, to, I want you to see one more consequence of confessing your faith, living by faith. Here it is, verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Now, you know the story. You've seen the movie. They're making a new movie. Moses comes. He hears God. He tells the people, don't be afraid. God's going to fight for you this day. They don't know what's going to happen. The Red Sea opens overnight. Wind blows all night. The ground's dry. The water is in heaps. Some people say, well, it was just, you know, some kind of natural occurrence. The wind blew and it kind of dried out the ground and people went through. Well, you can believe that if you want to. But it says they passed through on dry ground. And whatever little bit of water was left drowned everybody else. But I want you to see the the contrast between verse 28 and verse 29. By faith, Moses did something. And then it says in verse 29, by faith, they did something. In other words, the Scripture puts these together on purpose. Moses' act of faith emboldened the people to trust God when they were at the Red Sea. By faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, they walked through on dry ground. Nothing will influence your children or grandchildren more than to be a man or a woman who lives by faith. You want to influence the next generation. It's not going to be through education. It's not going to be by the books you read or the things you involve your kids in. The way to greatly influence the next generation is by your own walk of faith where you hear God, you own what he has said, this is for me, this is God speaking for me, and then you act or confess or agree with God in a consistent way by the the way that you speak and the way that you live. When a kid sees mom or dad or a grandparent living like that, they said, that is real. They're interacting with a living God. They're not just going to church. They're not just giving me a bunch of rules to keep. They're my daddy, my mom, my grandfather, my grandmother walks with God. That's what they see. It's the single greatest influence you'll have on your children or your grandchildren. 
Years ago, we, um, I left a pastor at Mississippi to go join with a group of people in Lake Charles, Louisiana that had been meeting in homes to start a new church in uh, southwest Louisiana. Up to this point, the church I pastored had grown. When we had been out west, the church we'd been part of had grown. We'd helped out five churches. They had grown. All the churches we had started before had grown. And it seemed that, that we could expect the same thing. And as I prayed about going and joining with these families that had been meeting in homes for about a year, God spoke to me. And, and I'm not going to go into detail on it, but God spoke to me, made clear to me, go to Lake Charles. Now, he did not say, go to Lake Charles to start a church. He did not tell me what was going to happen. He did not tell me what was going to unfold. I assumed that. But I do know for a fact he said, go to Lake Charles. And so I went. And this time of year, about 23 years ago, we arrived in southwest Louisiana. And we began meeting. And pretty quickly, we began to grow. Gail and I saw other people coming. They had not grown in the home, but they began to grow when we showed up. And so we moved out of homes. We moved into a meeting location. And it continued to grow. And pretty soon, within two or three months, we saw 50 or 60 people coming. And it looked like it was going to be like it had been before. But as people were coming, there were internal problems in the group. The core group did not want to include the new people in the decisions of the group. And we had what in church growth we call an old berry, new berry tension. The old berries don't want to share leadership with the new berries. Old berry, new berries, get that? And it, was, and it was tense. And I was the youngest one of the core group. The other five guys were movers and shakers in petrochemical facilities. They had leadership roles in hospitals and oil refineries, that kind of thing. They, these guys were sharp leaders. And we could not agree on anything. And after wrestling with that for several weeks and months, I reached the conclusion after praying about it, this was not going to work. This was not of God. And I came to them with tears in my eyes, and I said, this is a misfire. This is not right. We need to shut this down. And we did. In order to make ends meet, I had taken a job with an engineering firm there in Lake Charles. It was based out of Baton Rouge. And I started off working in, as a field technician, just collecting water samples and soil samples, air samples, and different things in the plants. And as long as I was working with the mission, I really didn't mind doing those things because I felt this was just going to last for a little while. I didn't know it was going to last for five years. And when the mission folded, I thought, well, you know, I don't know what the Lord has next, but um, he said to come to Lake Charles, but maybe it was just for this. And so we started sharing our resume with some trusted folks, and nothing happened. Nothing. And our income was severely depleted, and financially we were having to liquidate every asset that we had in the bank. Everything. Everything. And before it was over, we literally lost everything. And not having anywhere else to go, we, we settled on, on First Baptist Church Lake Charles. We started attending there. 
And a lot of people didn't know my background. The pastor and I had become friends, and he said, come make this at your home while you wait. And so we started attending there. At that point, we had four kids and one on the way. And yes, it was almost an even-numbered year. I could just look at her a certain way, and there it happened. And I can't describe to you what it was like to go through month after month and then year after year of not being in full-time ministry when you feel like that's what you're called to do and that's what your wiring is. And in the, in the time I spent there, there were many blessings and many lessons learned. And I shared my faith and God taught me a lot and I was promoted multiple times and I acquired business acumen there that served me later at places like Lifeway and the Arkansas Baptist State Convention that I, I could never have done if I had not spent that time in the business world. But I hated it. And my heart was just dying every day. I'd get in the truck early in the morning to go out to the plant to do some kind of maintenance or something with tears running down my face. Oh God, what's going on? And then there were numerous defining moments. Probably one of the greatest ones is when the CEO of the company came to me and said, Don, we're really grateful that you're here and you're doing a good job. He said, we want to move you into a different direction and we'd like to put you back in school to work on your master's degree. We'll pay for everything. And I went back and I shared that with Gail and I began to pray about it. I said, God, my heart's not in this. How do you want me to respond to this? And I had to really pour out my heart to get that out of the way. Because at the end of the conversation, I knew all that mattered was what he wanted me to do. I poured out my heart, got all that out of the way, and then God spoke and made very clear to me. He said, I'm, I've got you here for a reason, but, but I've got other things for you to do, and you're not through in ministry. In fact, he gave me a specific passage of Scripture, and he spoke it, and I owned it, and I acted on it. And here was the Scripture. Philippians 2, verse 13 he talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And as I read that, I realized that the word will means to desire. And I had this incredible desire that was unfulfilled. And I didn't know how long it would take, but he had not taken that desire away. And he was working in me both to will and the energy to do what he was calling me to do. It wasn't long after that that... First Baptist Lake Charles called me to come on staff part-time. And the remainder of those five years were some of the most awesome experiences of our life in terms of ministry, part-time. And then they brought us on full-time, and the five-year assignment ended. But here's what happened. Every time they came to me after that, every time they came to me after that, here was my confession. I'm just temporary. I became the senior employee in the office. <laughs> and people would say, uh, when are you going to do such and such or whatever? I said, it's all right. I said, I'm just temporary. They said, you've been passed over for promotion. It's okay. I'm just temporary. I'm just temporary. I'm just temporary. Now, how could I say that? Because God had said, this is not the end of the road for you. I've got other things for you to do. We learn to trust God by trusting God. 
No sermon will teach you to trust God. No book, no person. You have to trust him. And at some point, right where you're sitting, you've got to look back over the course of your life or this very moment or something you know is coming. And you've got to realize I'm not dealing with a religion here. I'm not dealing with whether I'm Baptist or Methodist. I'm not dealing with, with uh, this organization called the church. I'm dealing with what is God saying to me. I'm dealing with a person. The only way you learn to trust God is by trusting God. And let me add this before I close. We will not trust God until we have to. There's a point at which you realize all your safety nets are gone. There's nothing else earthly, in earthly terms that's going to rescue you or help you or, or make it better for you or make it easier for you to trust God. And when that moment comes, then you learn what it means to live by faith. Then you learn that we won't trust God until we have to. The old saints used to have a phrase that we would do well to revive. They used to talk about being shut up to faith. Shut up to faith. Being shut up to faith meant being in a situation in which there was no choice but to trust God. Shut up to faith. I used to talk about being hemmed in. Where I had nowhere else to go except to trust God. And that's when the lessons really begin. Are you there? Maybe this morning that's where you are. It's not hypothetical it's not a bible lesson for you but you're at a point a defining moment in your life where you know that god is speaking or is about to speak to you you're in the process of making a decision you're working through something in your life you're facing a difficulty you're facing a problem you're in a job you don't like you're in a marriage you don't like whatever the situation may be you're experiencing this moment and you're wondering what does god want me to do and he is speaking or he is about to speak to you And the most important thing that you need going forward in that defining moment is to know what God is saying. And when he speaks, if you're going to live by faith, you can't back away and say, never mind. But when he speaks, you've got to embrace it. You've got to welcome it. Oh, God, this is for me. Thank you. This is my, this is his word to my heart. And then you've got to live consistently with what he has said. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. At this moment, we're going to take an opportunity to respond to God right now as an act of worship. And maybe you don't know yet what God is saying to you. And so you're in a waiting mode. And it's okay to wait on him. It's okay to wait on him to make it clear to you. Others of you, you know at this very moment you're working through something and God is speaking to you and you know what he has said. You and I as Christ followers don't have the option of deciding what we're going to do with our lives because God already has a plan for us. And if I'm going to be the real deal, if I'm going to be a man or a woman that follows the Lord, I've got to say yes to him the moment he speaks and I recognize that he has spoken. So how will you respond to him? Will you trust him? Will you own the promise? Will you confess that promise? Or will you fall back?
If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me give you a word from you from his word. For God so loved the world, that means you, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you need to trust Christ today? He dies on the cross for your sins, the Bible tells us. Every sin you've ever committed, the very thing that's separating you from God, he died for your sins. You can't add to what he has done. You can't make yourself better. You can't change you on your own. You're never going to be what God wants you to be apart from Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. You say, well, I still feel guilty. The promise is that he'll forgive you. You say, I still mess up, still mistakes. The promise is that everything necessary to accomplish your salvation, he's already done. And if you'll come this morning and put your trust in him, he will wash away your sin. And he will begin a process of changing you from the inside out as you learn to walk with him by faith. Would you trust him? In just a moment, when we stand and sing, I'm going to invite you to slip out of the pew and place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you've never done that before, I invite you to come. There'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle. They'll help you. They'll talk with you. They'll counsel with you. They'll share scripture with you. You can read it for yourself. You may just need to pray here at the altar, brother or sister in Christ. You're wrestling. You're struggling. You want to settle something, and maybe you need to pray with one of the pastors here or just pray by yourself at the front. If that's helpful to you, take advantage of it, please. Our Father and our God, thank you for your word, for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for being here to teach us and show us the way to abundant life, a real life. And may it be at the end of time that each of us will be able to look back and tell the stories of what we did by faith when God spoke. May that be our testimony as a church, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me, because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you in all I do. Let me ask you please to bow your head and to close your eyes for just a moment. 
before we uh, before I pray and before we close out our response time and, and worship him with our giving with heads bowed and eyes closed if you're at a defining moment in your life a decision that needs to be made something you're you're needing to hear from God on or you know he's speaking and you need to respond to him I just want to pray with you before we close you're experiencing one of those watershed moments and you know that your response is very very important and you need clarity or you need strength of heart you just need the encouragement of knowing someone is praying with you if you'll raise your hand thank you you're in that moment right now thank you thank you all over the auditorium anybody else anybody else you're at that moment now defining moment let me pray with you father father thank you lord that you have not left us helpless or without hope that at the lowest moment of our life you are doing more related to our future and our destiny than we could ever imagine or dream help us to understand Lord that now we look through a glass darkly as we see this world and all that's brokenness all the challenges, all the difficulties. But Lord, would you open the eyes and strengthen the hearts of those especially who lifted their hands, that we can look down through the ages and we can see that time and eternity when we will be singing your praises and rejoicing over how you led us to glory. Father, for that, that individual who is seeking guidance, may you answer their cry. May they comprehend your voice as you speak through your word, through their circumstances, through the Holy Spirit in prayer, or through trusted counselors and advisors. But as you speak, Almighty God, would you give them the capacity to understand that it's your voice and open their heart to hear your voice. And for that person who realizes now that you are speaking and they know what you want them to do and they know what the next step is, Father, protect them in the battle that's going to follow. Protect them as they, they embrace the truth from the enemy and his attacks and his lies and his deception. Enable them and us with them to stand boldly on the promises of God that never fail. And may we as a church be the kind of people that pray for and encourage those that take steps of faith. Fathers, we give now. Would you take our gifts and use them? multiply them, use them to change lives and to encourage your servants all over the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.